Hello and welcome to another episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie, brought to you by Killer Podcasts, an evergreen podcasts network. I'm the titular Sean. And I'm the very titular Carrie. It's the show that takes you inside the unbelievable, the unexplainable, the macabre, and the bizarre and tries to find an answer. Hello, Caroline. On this auspicious occasion, it's week two of Axe Murder March. It certainly is quite, quite auspicious. Uh, and as our listeners, as longtime listeners will know, we are doing it for the ladies this month <laughs> um, with what I gather now is a three-part series on uh, Lizzie Borden, Caroline. Yes. And just to mention it, um, I didn't really put together that this was like International Women's Month. This, so <laughs> that was an accident. Yes. That was an accident. We weren't saying the ladies can do anything, including axe murder. I mean, we are saying that, but it, it's not. It's not for that. No, they demonstrably can, and this <laughs> month does prove it. But that was well, not our intention. We'll see what we think at the end of it. Maybe it's not a lady. Who knows? Well, it's interesting. That might be a theme of the story I have planned for the end of the month as well. But more on that later. So yeah, last week we went over the backstory of Fall River, Massachusetts, the Borden family, and the fateful day of August 4th, 1892, when patriarch Andrew Borden and his second wife, Abby, were found bludgeoned to death by a hatchet in the Borden home, leading many to suspect daughter Lizzie, of Lizzie Borden fame, of the brutal murders. Of Lizzie Borden fame. <laughs> well, you know, of being famous for being Lizzie Borden. Of taking an axe fame. <laughs> Um, if I remember correctly, not the 40 and 41 wax of legend, but like um, 18 and 19 or something like that. 10 and 20. Yeah, something like that. Uh, more on the, the, the mother-in-law who we know Lizzie stepmother. didn't care for, right? Yes, stepmother. Yes. Um, and uh, like you said, Sean, I do want to make a note that though we said this case would be split into two parts... I think after doing some more extensive research, it makes more sense to make it three. And that's not me sticking some filler in there to pad out the episodes. There's just a lot going on. Uh, I love it. And if it means Axe Murder March spills over into April, so much the better. But uh, well, there's it, a lot spilling over when it comes to Axe Murder. Woo! Let's get into it. <laughs> so... As we can tell already, and we're going to get into more, the Borden murders case is a wealth of details, specula speculation, he said, she said, twists, turns, all the good stuff. So that's why we're doing this three-parter. Um, I think to really get deep into the theories and clues, uh, we've, got to, we've got to expand it. I'm sorry. And, um, and since it's one of the most famous crimes in American history, if not all of true crime history... I just really want to make sure to give it a thorough treatment to the case, just like we did with Titanic so recently. Excellent. So uh, this week, I'm going to start with a short recap of a bit of what we know so far, and then we'll move on to what happens from there. We're going to discuss the investigation and initial inquest into the murders and the contradictory testimonies given by Lizzie, family members, and witnesses about the day of the crimes and all the related drama. I think especially because people come to this case and are probably coming to this podcast with preconceived notions of guilt, um, like that Lizzie did it, 
I, I, I heard a song about it once, so I am yes. pretty sure. And I saw this picture where, again, her she has the creepiest eyes. Yes. Well, when it becomes a, a nursery rhyme, that's when you're not getting a, a fair trial in a, in a court of law, or at least in the court of public opinion. So I want to make sure everyone has the details and they can make up their own minds. As you all may b- remember, there are a few things to keep in mind about the timeline events leading up to and including the day of the Borden murders. So one... The Borden family was not a terribly happy one. The first Mrs. Borden, who was Lizzie and her older sister Emma's biological mother, died when both girls were young, and Abby, their stepmother, was never really accepted by the girls, and Andrew, their father, was known to be a miser despite his generous wealth. Yeah, the... um the girls at a certain point neither would call her mother, right? They both refused. Like yes. Lizzie went along with it for a little while and then started calling her by her first name instead. Mm-hmm, and that's going to come up for sure. Two, Emma and Lizzie, Emma was 40 and Lizzie was 32 at the time of the murders, were both known as spinsters because they had never married and at their ages, prospects were not promising at the time. Both women still lived at home with their parents, even though the house was pretty tight quarters and did not allow for much privacy. But Emma was on a trip out of town during the time of the murders, though they did have the girl's uncle, John Morse, uh, visiting at the time. Really bad timing on his part, I guess. Well, but it probably was planned. Like, oh, we'll actually have an extra bed that night, John. Why don't you come and stay? Oh, I'm just saying it's a bad time to stay over your family's house and then a murder happens. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, to your uh, brother-in-law and his wife. Mm-hmm. Who's but, not your sister, because yes. your sister's already, already dead. Yeah. He apparently was out of the house during the crime, but we'll also talk about that. Three, the two days prior to the murder, so Tuesday, Wednesday, the family had experienced bouts of what seemed to be food poisoning, severe enough that Abby reported to a doctor neighbor that she was suspicious they may have been actually poisoned. Ah, the summer complaint. Mm-hmm. In both cases, housekeeper Bridget Sullivan and Lizzie uh, experienced less severe symptoms than Andrew and Abby, or none at all. Has this led to, is one of the theories we're going to run down that the girls were trying to poison the mother in the run-up to this? We'll see. Okay. And lastly, four, the timeline of events as recounted by both outside witnesses and Bridget and Lizzie, who were in or around the house at the time of the crimes, have some differences and discrepancies, even from their own earlier stories, that will become important to the investigation. So, let's continue on to that investigation, Sean. Initially, keeping with prevailing stereotypes about criminality, the Fall River police suspected the culprit must be an outsider to the town, and especially a foreigner. Mm-hmm. Ooh. <laughs> Stories quickly circulated that a Swede or a Portuguese in the Borden's employ had come to the house demanding money the morning of the murders, and this had prompted the crime. Well, that does sound, you have to admit, that sounds like a Swede or a Portuguese. <laughs> Us Portuguese, I guess, are a shifty lot. I don't know what we're known for besides, like, fish Cobblestones. Yeah, like, I don't know. Immigrant workers at Andrew Borden's Swansea farm, including Swedes and Portuguese, um, were soon eliminated as suspects because, you know, after questioning, no one had any motive. 
A Dr. Benjamin Handy, a respected local physician and family friend of the Bordens, claimed he had seen a pale young man with his eyes fixed on the sidewalk, walking nervously on 2nd Street, which was the Bordens' address, on the morning of the murders. So it's very Jack the Ripper vibes. Yeah. It's like, this is a shifty guy walking. Must have been him. Some possible pale young men were questioned. That also reminds me of George Harry Storrs, though, where the exactly. guy who uh, ultimately, I think, was our, our favorite suspect. Yeah, but he did some stuff. This is just a guy walking. Um, Dr. Hardy, though, later seemed reluctant to go to Boston to identify another possible suspect that they brought up. So the police began to discredit his sighting as being a part of the crime because he didn't seem to like really have his heart in it. I guess. Uh, just to be, you mean discredited, like they didn't think this was connected at all. Not that he was a part of the crime. Right? Yes, okay. exactly. A few random people even confessed to the murders, including a man who claimed to be Andrew Borden's illegitimate son with a woman he had committed to an insane asylum. So again, this is very Jack the Ripper kind of. Yeah, very with the, with the uh, Prince, Prince Ducky or whatever his stupid <laughs> name was getting involved. Mm-hmm. Nothing came of this. Um, he wasn't Andrew Borden's illegitimate son by a woman that Andrew had incarcerated. So he's out. Okay. Another man named Charles Peckham turned himself in for the crime, but was also quickly ruled out as another kook. It's fascinating. You get you get these in a lot of high profile murder mm-hmm. investigations, maybe even most. Um it's like, what What possesses people to do this? I'm sure some of it is mental illness. Uh, I don't know. I don't know otherwise. I don't know why you would do that. Like, even to insert yourself into a news story, you have to be a little mentally ill to want to do it this way. And I'm not saying that as a bash against mental illness. It doesn't seem like something a totally mentally stable person does. Right. A medium claimed to have spoken to Andrew himself from beyond the grave, of course, but apparently Andrew had refused to share the murderer's true identity, so he was still cagey even in death. Oh, again, shades of George Harry stores. Mm-hmm. Did he say in death whether his boots had been on or off? I still haven't figured out the boots thing yet. Okay. I know they're made for walking. Okay, well, I guess that's just what they're going to do. I guess. Either way. At first, many in the Fall River community pointed a finger at John Morris, Andrew's brother-in-law, as he was an outsider to the town, and of course, his visit just happened to coincide with the murders. thought you were going to say, and of course, a Swede. (laughs) I do want to emphasize again, he is not Abby Borden, who is one of the victims. He's not her brother. He is... The brother uh, of the first wife Who died. Yes, so so the brother of... He he is Lizzie and... um, Her sister's uncle. Yes. So Morse had been born in Fall River, but by 1892, he was living in South Dartmouth, Massachusetts, according to his court testimony. Before Before that, he had lived in the West for a number of years, and Morse was described as having a ragged beard, shallow gray bloodshot eyes, long, lanky, hard-featured fellow who dressed like a scarecrow and ate like a cormorant. Okay, I, you have to say he does sound like a murderer. <laughs> he sounds like Albert Fish, <laughs> kind of. According to the trial of Lizzie Borden, he was, quote, regarded by his neighbors as a very eccentric and peculiar man. Don't come between me and my birdseed. <laughs> <laughs> 
he wasn't that old. He was younger than Andy. He was about 60 at the time of the crimes. Yeah, but you know how people age. People aged like milk back then. Oh, absolutely. I mean, his picture does not look like a 60-year-old. In the days after the murders, John had to be rescued by Fall River police by an uh, um, from an angry mob who had been following him around and like threatening him. So police had to intervene. <laughs> so he was definitely the public's favorite suspect at first. Well, be, yeah, because he was just a guy they didn't recognize. Yeah, well, exactly. But Morris appeared to have an airtight alibi. But I'm going to preface it with a note that I wrote in the margin of the trial of Lizzie Borden, which is, huh? This is weird. (laughs) (laughs) So apparently, Morse had memorized the number of the streetcar he was riding at the time of Andrew Borden's death in particular, and even recalled the number that was on the streetcar conductor's cap. Well, that's actually... Accurately. In a way, that's more suspicious. Yes. Morse also mentioned that there were six priests also on the streetcar, and while the conductor didn't remember Morse himself, he did remember that at one point there was six priests in the streetcar, because you remember that. So, I mean, does he have Mary Lou Henner disease, or is this a, uh, you know, kind of too tight an alibi? Well, yeah, you may be asking yourself, self, or I guess Sean, um, isn't it weird for someone to memorize all these numbers for no apparent reason unless you're like rain manning or whatever? And you'd be right. It is weird. I don't do that. Right. (laughs) But he wasn't the only person to attest to his whereabouts at the time. Mrs. Daniel Emery, who was the relative he was visiting on Waybosset Street, confirmed his departure time from her home as well. And Dr. Bowen himself, who you might remember as a neighbor of the Bordens and one of the first people at the crime scene, he coincidentally arrived to attend to Mrs. Emery's sick daughter just as Morse was leaving the house at 11.20 a.m. Hey, you know where we could use a doctor? So it seems like he was definitely there during Andrew's murder, unless something else is playing into this. Right. And Lizzie's older sister is away at a friend's house. Is that confirmed? I think so. Uh, we're going to get deeper into Emma's stuff a little later and also next episode but i mean she seems pretty clearly like people rule her out at least being present i couldn't find what time that morse said he arrived at the emory house so his location for abby's murder might still be up in the air but i don't know if that matters if he's got a definite place for andrews nobody's really putting out multiple murderers theories on this right we'll get there when we talk about theories So, interestingly, the Fall River Daily Herald reported on a possible motive for Morse soon after the crimes based on an anonymous tip said to be from a member of the Borden family. Quote, Lizzie regarded Mr. Morse with more tenderness than most nieces feel for their uncles. That is a euphemism? I think they're saying something there as gently as possible. Uh, They also added, Andrew was constantly on the alert to see the breath of scandal did not reach his home in relation to Morse and Lizzie. So what they seem to be hinting at is that maybe Lizzie and Uncle John were having some sort of Game of Thrones affair. I was going to say a House of the Dragon (laughs) Mm -hmm. scenario. Or maybe Lizzie was having an affair with someone else. Jane Grey, Abby Borden's stepmother. So I think this would be 
Lizzie's step-step grandmother. <laughs> uh, she shared some gossip with police about a possible relationship between Lizzie and her doctor and neighbor, Seabury Bowen. You don't say. I say. And Carrie, last week you were trying to tell me Lizzie was gay. Now you're telling me about all, the, I'm all not these trying affairs to, I'm with men. saying, especially recently, pop culture has framed it that way. But maybe she's just a woman about town. I love it. Take take that power back, girl. <laughs> so apparently, four years prior to the murders, the rest of the Borden family traveled to the Borden farm for the summer, but Lizzie stayed home alone in Fall River, Alexander Hamilton styles. Uh-oh. So maybe she didn't say no to this. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> During that summer, Dr. Bowen escorted her to church one Sunday evening, and Fall River uh, just worked itself into a tizzy, speculating on if the two were in an illicit relationship. Why would your, why would one of your illicit activities be going to church where everyone is? <laughs> I don't know, said Mrs. Gray. Some remarked how courageous she was to remain in the house alone, but others replied in a very knowing way, perhaps she has acceptable company. Wow. And then Mrs. Gray sipped her tea and just... Mm. I see why you wanted to, to linger in this stuff a little while <laughs> I mean, it's, longer. It's, so, it's, it's such a dis distillation of this kind of small society, town, small society. town stuff at the end of the 1800s. So I love it. Now, Bowen was around 30-ish, I think, years older than Lizzie, and he was also actively married, which, of course, only added to the scandal. But his actions the day of the murders also received some deserved scrutiny. So one thing we did not discuss during last episode, um, since it was part of the de deeper investigation, was that on the day of the murders, a small pail of, like... Like cut up or small towels that were covered in blood was found soaking in the wash cellar, and um, that was weird to police. Yeah, just bloody towels. The day after the murder. The day of the murder. When this discovery was made, Officer William Medley understandably immediately asked Lizzie, "Like, what's with all the bloody towels? Why are you soaking them and trying to clean them?" And why is there blood? Yeah. Instead of replying directly, Lizzie referred the officer to Dr. Bowen, who was still on the premises after making the initial medical assessments of the bodies. Bowen vouched for Lizzie that these were menstrual cloths and that, quote, it had been explained to him and was all right. So keep in mind, back in the day, women would have to wear small cloths, um, affixed to a belt while on their periods because mass-manufactured disposable pads and tampons had not been invented yet. So the idea here was that Lizzie was just having her period and these cloths were just being washed to be reused next month. Okay. Like reusable diapers or yeah, something like that. Yeah, sure. I accept that completely. Take me through how many rags in a bucket we're talking about. Is it, I it's just... It's at a pail, so I'm thinking like a milk pail, you know? Yeah. I don't have periods. Does that seem like an acceptable, like, does that seem like well, a... Well, it doesn't give an exact number, number of rags. But you have to keep in mind, you know, at this time, there's nothing, I mean, I don't know uh, medical history to a T, but there's nothing that women could take to ease the symptoms of PMS and having your period. 
um, when it comes to like flow and things like that. Uh, birth control didn't exist. Hormone regulation didn't exist. And so if you're someone who just has naturally really debilitating periods um, or, or heavy flow, um, you could go through several thick pads a day. And I'm sure these towels probably aren't as absorbent just because they're not like technically made to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I, I don't think it's crazy to fill a pail. Okay. And they were soaking. So I assume that there was some space in there. And this is the doctor she might have been having an affair with. Mm-hmm. Okay. So he's, he also might be a willing accomplice to murder. Could be. Yeah. But also he might just be T- talking about her delicate yes it could be just a situation where she's shy to talk to a police officer a man about her her monthlies which is still stupidly uh you know a little taboo to talk about nowadays um so she she's like oh well, my doctor's here he can tell him and i don't have to do it it's embarrassing doesn't Lizzie come off as kind of a brassy lady in a lot of ways or or am i wrong about i wouldn't that? say i mean we haven't dived really into her like outward personality but i wouldn't say brassy i would say independent i mean she did she was kind of dependent on her sister and they they both certainly depended on their father for money but like we'll get into it but she likes fishing she 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 does stuff for herself she does she's not like asking bridget to do things for her constantly so yeah i was just surprised i was surprised to hear she would I'm surprised to imagine her shrinking away from. Well, she does not like answering questions. So we'll talk about that in a little bit. But speaking of Bridget, their maid, um, Bridget said that she had not noticed the pail until that day, the day of the murders. And it could not have been there two days before, as Lizzie apparently claimed, you know, maybe she said, oh, my period ended at this time and whatever. Or she would have seen it and put the contents in the wash. So Bridget says, this is a fresh pail of bloody rags. Take that as you will. And yeah, I, I don't, this isn't, I don't leave pails of bloody rags around the house for two days. Right. I keep a clean house. <laughs> so we have Bowen getting involved here. And also during the initial investigation on the day of the crime, he closed the door, um, literally, not figuratively, on Lizzie at one point to the police when they wanted to question her and insisted that she have a moment to collect herself before that. I mean, her parents just died, so that's, I could see it. But perhaps most suspiciously, on the day of the murders, Officer Harrington saw Dr. Bowen in the Borden's kitchen looking at scraps of paper that Bowen appeared to be trying to assemble and read. When questioned by Harrington, Bowen said, it does not amount to anything, and that it was simply a note about his own daughter's proposed visit to the Bordens. Bowen then just tossed the scraps into the kitchen stove, destroying what could have been key evidence. Harrington noted that he himself saw the name Emma on the paper uh, written as it burned, and notably, Bowen's daughter's name was Florence. So uh, Lizzie's sister's name, Emma, is on the paper, right? but not the person that Bowen said was. So what's, what's Bowen's deal? Was he trying to protect his secret paramour, Lizzie? Or is he just a dumbass destroying evidence? 
I think the Occam's razor of it all is he's a dumbass. The Occam's razor is almost always everyone's just a dumbass, but mm. it does seem especially it, it's suspiciously stupid to throw the letter into yes. uh, the fire before anyone else gets a chance to read it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know, but I guess if we follow this to its log- logical conclusion, was it a note from Lizzie confessing the crime? Was it a note from? The dad that he wrote as he was dying saying uh, Lizzie and Emma conspired to do this. Mm, um, I don't think he had time to write a note. Neither do I. But then <laughs> w- what's the note? You know? mm-hmm. Yeah. So with Lizzie constantly in the back of their minds, police also moved on to suspect the housemaid, Bridget Sullivan. Of course, as she was an Irish immigrant, and Irish immigrants made up an entire third of those arrested between 1889 and 1893 in Fall River, her outsider status made her a target. That's why they call it a paddy wagon. Oh, yeah? Mm-hmm. Because paddy, like, Patrick, like... Yeah, like the, like it's a slur for, for Irish people. Well, I didn't know that. Yeah. I'm sorry. That's I mean, a- I never called it that, but I'm sorry for your people. That's okay. Uh, we, we don't say jip anymore either. Well, you just did. <laughs> Jesus. There is also the fact that many dis- domestic servants like Bridget would have had experience with an axe that many middle or upper class women wouldn't have due to having to chop wood or slaughter animals. It seemed that Bridget didn't necessarily have to perform these particular duties since cords of wood arrived regularly from the farm to the Borden house, but it was enough to make it seem like she'd be handier with a hatchet than Prim Lizzie Borden would have. Prim Lizzie Borden, who loves fishing and makes her own lures? I bet she swung a hatchet around that property. She's also a Sunday school teacher and, you know. That's just where she meets one of her many boyfriends from what you just told me. (laughs) Luckily, Lizzie's version of events at least placed Bridget outside doing the windows at the time of Abby's death and upstairs when Andrew was killed. Yet during the trial, Lizzie's lawyer, Andrew Jennings, stated he felt that Bridget should have been arrested, asking, quote, in the natural course of things, who would be the party to be suspected? As in, it should be Bridget. It should be the poor person, obviously. Mm-hmm. Really throwing Bridget Maggie under the bus there. Oh, poor Bridget Maggie. I forgot they called her Maggie. <laughs> yes, they could not be bothered to just... Learn a new name of a new Bridget. Irish lady. <laughs> yeah, so they called her the name of the old maid. It's not great. Bridget never would be charged with any crime, and right after giving her testimony to the initial investigation, she would retrieve her belongings from the Borden house and go to her cousin's home on Division Street, never to return to Second Street again. You know, I guess to be fair to the theory, to give it something other than racism to go on. Right. Um, I mean, it is a natural, like, there were two people present that we know of. It's natural to suspect both of them. For motive, you need only look as far as the Maggie thing. And Mm -hmm. um, her alibi is that she was taking a nap at the time, isn't it? Call me Maggie one more time. Yeah. And, and And she was taking a nap when Abby was killed? She No, Andrew. Okay. So now we and the police arrive at Lizzie, whose inconsistent account of her movements at the time of the murders and seemingly strange reactions naturally made her person of interest number one. Well, two after the Irish lady. Yeah, but she became number one. 
Officer Phil Harrington made note of his initial suspicions. Quote, Lizzie stood by the foot of the bed and talked in the most calm and collected manner. Her whole bearing was most remarkable under the circumstances. There was not the least indication of agitation, no sign of sorrow or grief, no lamentation of heart, no comment on the horror of the crime, and no expression of a wish that the criminal be caught. All this, and something that to me is indescribable, gave birth to a thought that was most revolting. I thought at least she knew more than she wished to tell. Okay, but people said this kind of thing about Damien Eccles, too. Granted, he wasn't Mm -hmm. um, related to the victims. People react weirdly in weird situations. Not everyone has uh, been privy to uh, a house full of murder. So, you know, I'd probably act weird, too. It's, It's a thing you don't experience a lot. There was the fact that Lizzie had stated her stepmother had received a note from a sick friend and gone out that morning, but no note was ever found at the house unless it was related to the scraps that Dr. Bowen threw away, but he said it was just a note from Florence. And no one ever came forward to identify themselves as the author, like, oh, yeah, it was me. She she came to see me, Uh, nor even did a delivery boy who would have been the one to bring the note to the Borden home from the sender. No one ever came forward to know anything about the note. Hmm. Lizzie's estranged uncle, Hiram Harrington, who I don't believe uh, is related to the police officer I just mentioned, but these people are in close quarters, so who knows, all but accused his own niece of the crime in the Fall River Daily Globe. Quote, I had a long talk with Lizzie yesterday, Thursday, the day of the murder, and I am not at all satisfied with her demeanor. She is very strong-willed and will fight for what she considers her rights. So with, the, with relatives like this, who needs enemies? Uh-huh. Uh, and her rights, if, if I remember, were going to include a bigger allowance, ideally. I would assume so. She did get very meager money from her father. Abby's brother-in-law, George Fish, took it even further, directly accusing Lizzie and John Morse of hiring an assassin to kill the Bordens simply to get them out of the way. All right, why is John getting uh, burned here? I don't know. I mean, clearly they're loyal to the second wife, so maybe it's just proximity. For what it's worth, the day after the crime, Emma and Lizzie put up a $5,000 reward to anyone who may secure the arrest and conviction of the person or persons who occasioned the death of Andrew J. Borden and his wife. Now, wouldn't it be ironic if you got a, if you were convicted of the crime and then had to pay them a reward? <laughs> <laughs> yes. No one came forward to claim this reward, and it would never be paid out. The daughters also hired Superintendent O.M. Hanscom of the Pinkerton Detective Agency to supplement the police investigation. But mysteriously, Hanscom vanished from town after only two days on the job. So he uh, or the Pinkertons would never rustle up any new clues either. Wow. I, you know, the, that name comes with such a kind of brand cachet, the Pinkertons. I thought he was really going to make a difference, but nope. I mean, if you watch the Lizzie Borden show that was on, I think it was Lifetime with Christina Ricci, the Pinkertons are heavily involved in the storyline. Oh, I thought you were going to say like played by Josh Gad. No. Like it's, like it's a bumbling comedy character. No, no. The funerals occurred on August 6th for the Bordens, and after this, the initial physical investigation was completed and testimonies were taken for the inquest. 
Bridget was questioned the next week, and at this time she told police, things didn't go in the house as they should, and, sh- and I wanted to leave and had threatened to do so several times. Bridget also stated that she only remained in the employment of the Bordens out of loyalty to Abby, who she called a lovely woman. Bridget was asked to give her own timeline of the events of August 4th, and she complied. Now, I just have to note that the person taking the testimony at the inquest was District Attorney Hosea Knowlton, who was put in charge of the investigation and, of course, eventual prosecution. His description in The Trial of Lizzie Borden is just amazing, so I had to call it out. Okay. This is Hosea. Mm-hmm. The DA. A man prefiguring a Teddy Roosevelt guide to masculinity, a large man who seemed the incarnation of solidity, powerful in body as well as in mind. It's like, okay, Hosea work. We're going to get some rootin' tootin' justice. (laughs) So this is the guy to keep in mind when we get to the trial. Bridget's timeline uh, went as follows. After cleaning the dishes from breakfast on August 4th, and that breakfast was only the elder Bordens, and John Morse. She washed the outside windows because Abby asked her to and chatted with the neighbor's housemaid. So kind of establishing alibi. Afterward, she moved inside and felt tired enough to lie down. As she had Thursday afternoons off anyway, and it was like 11-ish, it seemed like she was just getting a jump start on her half day. She was exhausted from washing the windows. And being called the wrong name. Yes. So as she kind of dozed in her third floor bedroom, Lizzie called for her, and that's when it was discovered that Andrew was dead. After this point, Bridget went to retrieve Dr. Bowen. He went over, uh, and she said that though she had seen Lizzie pass through the kitchen in the early morning, she couldn't give any more specific details on Lizzie's movements during that day. So... After the break, we'll dive into Lizzie's testimony at the initial inquest, as well as the testimonies of witnesses from related parties and how they may or may not contradict each other. Does that mean more tea? So much tea. Hello, this is Dr. Grande, the host of True Crime Psychology and Personality. On my podcast, I explore and explain the pathology behind some of the most horrendous crimes and those who commit them. We discuss topics like narcissism, psychopathy, sociopathy, and antisocial personality disorder from a scientifically informed perspective. What is a narcissist? How do you spot a sociopath? What signs can you look for to protect yourself from these dangerous personalities? It's not just about the stories, but also the science and psychology behind them. So if you're interested in true crime or mental health, I'd encourage you to give my show a listen wherever you get podcasts. Welcome back. When last we left you, we had just heard Bridget slash Maggie's account. Bridget Maggie. Bridget Maggie's account of the day of the murders of the Borden family, the Mm -hmm. Borden uh, matriarch and patriarch. Mm -hmm. Uh, And hopefully, Carrie, we're going to get into what Lizzie had to say. Uh, oh, we're going to get into it. Pretty soon, because it is almost time for this um, trial, right? Oh, we got we got some inquesting to do first. Ooh, are they going to do us a, per, a, a suspect lineup? No. Yep, that's the one. That's Lizzie. <laughs> 
So D.A. Knowlton, who, if you remember, he's our Teddy Roosevelt vibes uh, guy. Yeah, I'm, I'm here to investigate the crime. <laughs> he knew that the next logical step was to call Lizzie to testify in the inquest. And of course, this request went through Borden family lawyer Andrew Jennings, who would become Lizzie's counsel in the spoiler alert uh, eventual murder trial. Jennings was a Fall River native with an established law practice and a respected name. He was really an ideal choice for Lizzie's defense. Jennings, to paint a picture like that of Knowlton, was called by various people a hard fighter, a splendid dancer, and one reporter wrote that his eyes fairly snap when he is in motion, and he has the ability to be everywhere and see everything all at once. Oh my God, who are we getting to play this guy? (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. He he's kind of like on the the thinner side. I think he has a mustache. Okay, so he's like a um he's a shrewd and intelligent man as well as one that could boogie on down during his off hours. Yeah, I feel like he's Michael Fassbender. I think that's too hot. Do you think he's too hot for this? Yeah. I think my vibe for him is like H.G. Wells in Time After Time. Okay. So we'll go with that guy. Malcolm McDowell. <laughs> famous actor. (laughs) Lizzie was allowed to testify at the inquest. I think she probably had to. And her testimony took quite a while, several days. Knowlton here was looking for motive and opportunity since he was, of course, looking for someone to prosecute in these crimes. Much of the following information, you can find um, transcripts online, but this information is, is brilliantly written in the trial of Lizzie Borden by Kara Robertson. It's our primary source on this series. So all credit to Ms. Robertson because she really just framed it perfectly. And and I I lifted the framing, but I'm crediting hers. Go buy her book. So first, Knowlton inquired as to whether Andrew and or Abby Borden had any known enemies or anyone they were on bad terms with. Lizzie mentioned that her father had been threatened by a man because of his refusal to rent the man one of his properties, but could not recall the man's name. Convenient. Yeah, of course. She did bring up Hiram Harrington, married to her father's sister, Lorana, who we mentioned before. um, Hiram was someone who publicly accused Lizzie from her own family. Perhaps Lizzie bringing him up during the inquest and creating suspicion around him caused him to retaliate. But I think his quote came from the day after the murders. Well, maybe it's the opposite. Maybe it's Lizzie. So maybe, yeah, Lizzie's retaliating by sullying his name on the record. But aside from the unnamed man and Harrington, Lizzie couldn't think of anyone else who might have had issue with either of her parents. Well, there's me and my sister. We fucking hate that lady. (laughs) Well, she did admit to having had words with Abby about five years previous, which probably uh, coincided with the whole real estate dust-up of the Borden family relating to Abby's half-sister. Knowlton wanted Lizzie to elaborate on the strained relationship with her stepmother, but Lizzie was cagey. When asked if the two were at least cordial, Lizzie responded, It depends on one's idea of cordiality, perhaps. That depends on what your definition of is, is. (laughs) Thank you, Bill. Uh, Bill Clinton over there. So Knowlton responded, according to your idea of cordiality. Lizzie, we were friendly. I do not mean the dearest of friends in the world, but very kindly feelings and pleasant. I do not know how to answer you any better than that. Hadn't she told a hairdresser like a month ago that her uh, stepmother was a, a, a mean old thing or yes, something? Yes, she, she sure did. 
But, you know, hairdressers, it's like uh, a therapist or a priest. Those things are said in confidence and usually under stress. So that's on the hairdresser. (laughs) When asked if their relations were like those of a mother and daughter, Lizzie replied, in some ways it was and some it was not. Like she didn't call her mom or treat her like a mom at all. Mm -hmm. She declined to elaborate, though she did mention she had once called Abby mother, mother, (laughs) but she had switched to referring to her as Mrs. Borden around the same time she had had words with Abby. Lizzie also stated she knew of no strife between Andrew and Abby in their marriage for what that was worth. At this point, Knowlton asked Lizzie what she was wearing the day of the murders. Lizzie stated that in the morning she had been wearing a navy blue sort of a bangling silk skirt with a navy blue blouse, but in the afternoon had changed into a pink wrapper, which I assumed is like kind of a wraparound dress. I didn't look it up. Sorry. It's pink. Knowlton asked if this was the only time she had changed clothes on August 4th. Lizzie said yes. Then Knowlton began to prod around the question of her uncle, John Morse. There was some confusion between Knowlton and Lizzie about when and how often Morse had previously visited, um, with her concluding that before he had moved back east from the west a year prior, he had probably visited the Bordens once, but oddly, she did not know whether he has or has not since. Huh. Knowlton, frustrated, asked how many times in the last year since Morse had moved back east has he visited the Borden house? Again, Lizzie replied oddly, not at all to speak of, nothing more than a night or two at a time. That's not... It's not nothing, obviously. So Knowlton is like, and he's trying He's he's trying to be more specific. Okay. No, no more than a night or two at a time. Okay. How many nights total? Yes. How often does he come to spend a night or two? Lizzie stymied him once more. Really? I don't know. I'm away so much myself. Just answer, Where? answer the question to the best of your abilities. How many fishing trips are you going on also? Well, I, she doesn't have much to do. And, you know, she doesn't have much to do, except for going on random fishing trips with friends. With additional prodding, she added, I have not been away the last year so much, but other times I have been away when he has been here. Oh, okay. Oh, hold on. So in the last year, though, how many times has he come over? I don't know. I've been away. Well, but not in the last year, though, so... Yeah, it's like that. Finally, Knowlton got Lizzie to estimate that Morse had likely visited at least one other time before his move back east. So there's like this 14-year period where he's living in the West and he visits a couple times. But when asked what he did at the house, when he did visit within the past year, Lizzie again was vague. I am away a great deal in the daytime, occasionally at night. So okay. she couldn't give a straight answer. Say he hung out with dad, I yeah. think I wasn't really there. Exactly. Lizzie further stated she knew he was at home at the home uh, visiting the day of the murders because she'd heard his voice downstairs the day previously, but she didn't physically run into him either day because she was out visiting her friend Alice Russell on the Wednesday night until about 9 p.m. and she didn't see him in person the next morning before he left the house. Morse, uh, for what it's worth, told the inquest in his own testimony that actually he had visited the Bordens while he was 
in the West in 1865, 1876, 1878, and 1885, and once stayed for an entire year. Well, I was away for a lot of that year. (laughs) So it's like he's a pain in the ass house guest and you don't remember your uncle stayed with you for a year? A year! Especially since the bedroom he stayed in was right next to hers. I think there was one time before he moved back out that Uh he came to stay. For a year. (laughs) I mean, are you going to tell me that Lizzie has like some kind of a... Uh, uh, a horrific memory condition. I don't know. Or maybe she's very, very socially awkward. Knowlton, referencing some background information he had, asked Lizzie why she had canceled her plans to join a group of friends who left on a trip for Marion earlier in the week um, of the murders. Let me guess. She said she doesn't really like to travel. (laughs) Well, if she had gone on the trip, she would have been away on August 4th. So why did she have a change of heart early that week? Lizzie responded that she decided to wait until the next Monday to leave because as secretary treasurer of the Christian Endeavor Society, she had to attend a meeting that upcoming Sunday because there's no way they could have possibly moved on without her. Without Lizzie, she's obviously such a great speaker. Well, she's a secretary treasurer, Sean, put some respect on her title. Uh, Lizzie stated that she had written to one of the members of the friend's trip earlier that week to let them know that she would be a week late but apparently fearing being caught up in the sensational story, the recipient had since burned the correspondence. Wow, so many notes being burned mm-hmm. in this story. So again, maybe it's not weird that Morse did that because he's not the only one that did that. Well, no, maybe... Unless they're all involved. Um, the recipient, who I believe was one Elizabeth Johnson, was questioned by police about the letter, but weirdly responded, I have said all I think I should about the letter. About the letter. And none of the other women on the friend's trip would even speak to police. Well, that is weird. Mm -hmm. Knowlton then moved on uh, to the timeline of events Lizzie had recounted for the morning of August 4th. Lizzie stated that in the earlier part of the morning, she was ironing her her handkerchiefs and reading Harper's Magazine and the Providence Journal. Around the time Andrew left the house that morning, said Lizzie, Abby had gone upstairs to freshen up. And she hadn't seen her since. Explain ironing handkerchiefs to me. She doesn't have a job. She doesn't have a crazy social life. And her friends are already away. But this is a piece of fabric that is made to go into your pocket and then to catch snot coming out of your face, right? Well, they were washed and now they need to be ironed, Sean. Lest they be wrinkled. (laughs) Lizzie reckoned that Abby was going to switch out the shams on the guest bed since Abby was intending on having company Monday and wanted everything in order. When asked by Knowlton, what explanation can you suggest as to what Abby was doing from the time she said she got all the work done in the spare room until 11 o'clock? Lizzie had no answer. And contrary to Bridget's testimony, Lizzie said that she herself was actually downstairs when Andrew came home then contradicted herself a few minutes later, stating that she was upstairs when he returned, but she had only been upstairs for a few minutes. Hmm. Knowlton, likely wanting to seize on this discrepancy like a monkey on a cupcake, as my dad would say, uh, nonetheless showed restraint in his response. You remember, Miss Borden, I will call your attention to it so as to see if I have any misunderstanding, not for the purpose of confusing you but you remember that you told me several times that you were downstairs and not upstairs when your father came home. Lizzie, 
didn't even flinch. I don't know what I have said. I have answered so many questions, and I am so confused, I don't know one thing from the other. If I was Knowlton, and not even speaking to whether I think she did this or not, but if I was him, I would be like going batty right now with how frustrating she was being. Yeah, uh, you'd probably be just as frustrated if you were her defense attorney. Oh, absolutely. Eventually, Lizzie would state again that she thought she was downstairs when her father got back home. She seemed to stick with that. The inquest paused about there and resumed the next day. Knowlton immediately returned back to Lizzie's timeline, wanting to pin the specifics down. Lizzie stated that before Andrew had left that morning, she had seen him in the sitting room and Abby in the dining room. Referring to their bout of food poisoning the previous day, Lizzie asked Abby how she was feeling, who then responded, Abby did, that she was going out and would get their dinner. Well, so wait, so she didn't answer the question. Uh, yep. Lizzie then went into the kitchen and down to the cellar to retrieve clean clothes. And when she went back upstairs through the main floor, Andrew had been reading the paper. On this day, unlike the previous, Lizzie stuck to the story that she had been downstairs all morning, except when she quickly went upstairs to baste a piece of tape on a dress, which I'm sure makes sense for the time. But I don't know what that means. Well, you have to uh, ladle it with some some good some salt and some good... Uh I have you no know, idea what s- based some, some tape on a dress. Knowlton, at this point, had had it with her flip-flopping, asking, Do you remember you did not say that yesterday? <laughs> Lizzie, again, was cool as a cucumber. I don't think you asked me. I told you yesterday I went upstairs directly after I came up from down cellar with clean clothes. Again, she's like, uh, she's a cat gaslight queen at this point. Just, but what are, what are we supposed to make of this? Maybe she's she's like the KGB. This is just it's 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 not dis it's not misinformation. It's disinformation. Yeah, it's just like put answering so much, questions with questions type of thing. Put so much bullshit out there that no one has any idea what's going on with Lizzie. <laughs> Exasperated, Knowlton continued, Miss Borden, I am trying in good faith to get all the doings that morning of yourself and Miss Sullivan, and I have not succeeded in doing it. Do you desire to give me any information or not? (laughs) Lizzie, finally a bit flustered, replied that she could not give him information she didn't have, adding, I don't even know what your name is. (laughs) (laughs) But in summation of her given timeline of the earlier part of the morning as the trial of Lizzie Borden notes, quote, Lizzie placed herself in the center of the house in the best position not only to see any theoretical intruder, but also to observe Abby's movements or lack thereof. Lizzie's account about the second period of the morning, that relating to her father and his time of death, was also a seesaw of confusion between her and Knowlton. Shortly after Andrew returned to the house, whether she was or was not at the top of the stairs when he did, we don't know. Mm-hmm. Lizzie said that she decided to go to the barn to get a sinker for fishing in advance of the girl's trip she still planned on joining the upcoming Monday. Incredulous, Knowlton asked, It occurred to you after your father came in it would be a good time to go to the barn to get sinkers? (laughs) Knowlton followed up with even more questions. Did she have a hook or fishing line? If there was fishing line at the family farm, as she'd mentioned, wouldn't the sinkers have been there as well and not in the barn? Lizzie's answer was ready. There were lines and perhaps hooks at the farm, but 
I did not say I thought there were sinkers on my lines. <laughs> she knew there was lead in the barn and planned to use that to fashion some sinkers DIY style. On her way from the house to the barn, she also stopped under the pear tree for some pears. Then she proceeded onto the upper part of the barn for the lead. Knowlton, you went to the second story of the barn to look for sinkers for lines you had at the farm, as you supposed, as you had seen them there five years before that time? Mm -hmm. Lizzie, I did not intend to go to the farm for lines. I was going to buy some lines there. Their meaning on the trip. So she wasn't going to the farm at all. That's why she did what she did. Knowlton, what was the use of telling me a while ago you had no sinkers on your line at the farm? <laughs> I could literally see his face just turning red, trying to keep track of all of this. <laughs> Knowlton stated that the search for lead could have at most only taken a few minutes, and Lizzie responded that she went over to the west window of the barn, straightened its curtain, and ate her pears. While this, she was there. This girl has been eating lead her whole life, I think. <laughs> Knowlton, do you mean to stay do you mean to say you stopped your work and sat still and ate your pears? Referencing something Lizzie had said earlier about telling Abby she didn't feel well enough to have dinner that night due to the gastric distress she'd recently experienced, Knowlton argued you were feeling better than you did in the morning, well enough to eat pears, but not enough to eat anything for dinner that night. You have put yourself in the only place, perhaps, where it would be impossible for you to see a person going into the house. So obviously he's saying it's like, this is suspicious. Yep. As both myself and Kara Robertson want to interject at this point, we must keep in <laughs> mind that Knowlton, uh, much like with the menstrual cloths and then the police finding it very suspicious, um, if that was menstrual cloths, Knowlton was a working man typical of the era and likely had no idea about the details of the life of women of leisure at the time uh, and likely about the inner lives of women at all. It's not as if Lizzie had much to do. Uh, if this all actually happened, as she said it did, it sounds like she was scraping around for anything to occupy her time. Uh, it kind of reminds me of the Salem Witch Trials. The girls, a lot of the girls did that partially out of boredom and wanting attention. I'm sure the life of a spinster who didn't even have the benefit of living in the most society-connected part of town was dreadfully dull most of the time. Mm -hmm. So, Sometimes all you had to do was iron some hankies, read a magazine, do a little crafting, and eat some pears. That's a full day. Yeah, I understand. But the the going out to the barn for lead to make fi bad fishing lures that you could just... Sinkers. Weights. Bad fishing weights that you could just buy. She can buy better ones than she could make. She has lots of money. And she's going to well, buy... Does, she does, keep in mind, they only get $4 allowance. I think through between the both of them. And Emma's away this week, so maybe she's getting the bulk of the allowance, you know, for okay. her trip money. Okay, Lizzie. Lizzie would respond to his exasperated question, I felt well enough to eat the pears. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> Sorry. Couldn't eat dinner, ate the pears. Mm -hmm. Knowlton moved on to the murder weapon, and Lizzie noted that she knew there was an old axe down in the cellar, but had never handled a hatchet. When asked if it was possible blood would be found on any existing implements at the Borden home, she responded that Andrew had killed some pigeons in the barn last May or June, and that he may have beheaded them. I, I think they had human blood, too. <laughs> well, they didn't know how to test for that at this point, and it's 
unfortunately, even before fingerprinting. So when Knowlton returned to the cause of the tension between the Borden daughters and Abby in particular, Abby's uh, asking of Andrew to purchase her family home so that her half sister could live there basically rent free. Right. And the girls were like, wait, no, give us a house Mm -hmm. from somewhere. Uh, Lizzie to this gave an uncharacteristically lengthy response, kind of like when you ask someone uh, what they really think of someone else and they're excited to finally let loose on all the stuff they've pent up. She said, uh, the stepmother, Mrs. Oliver Gray, wanted to sell it and my father bought out the widow Gray's share. She did not tell me and he did not tell me, but some outsiders said he gave it to her, put it in her name. I said if he gave that to her, he ought to give us something. Told Mrs. Borden so. She did not care anything about the house herself. She wanted it so this half-sister could have a home. And we always thought she persuaded father to buy it. At any rate, he did buy it, and I'm quite sure she did persuade him. I said what he did for her, he ought to do for his own children. So he gave us grandfather's house. That was all the trouble we ever had. Why weren't they living in grandfather's house? I don't know. Maybe it was weird for uh, women to live alone. I don't know. Well, I got news for you. It was weird for them to live with their parents and this maid. Of course. Of course. Lizzie also mentioned that the Ferry Street house, which I... And their uncle for a year at a time. (laughs) Well, it's very forgettable, Sean. Lizzie also mentioned that the Ferry Street house, which I... And this is F-E-R-R-Y. I've been told that I say fairy weird. Um... As opposed to fairy? Fairy. 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 I say it like fairy, like a little fairy Tinkerbell. Right. But fairy street. Um, This, I think, is the grandfather's house that that was just mentioned. It was actually bought back from herself and Emma by Andrew some weeks ago. I don't know just how many. So five years previously, he had given them or put this place in their names, and then he just bought it back, like a few weeks before the murders. From the girls. From the girls. Interesting. But they weren't living there. No. The DA began to speculate if this repurchase could have played a role in the eventual murders. The fact that Andrew bought the home back from the sisters just weeks prior seemed like an awfully big coincidence, especially when it's tied to this monumental rift in the family. And if she just sold a home, she does have the money for fishing weights. (laughs) Could the money have been intended to appease his daughters in advance of a planned change to his will, perhaps? Later that day, both Emma Borden and Hiram Harrington discussed the property dispute in their own inquest testimonies. Emma reluctantly agreed that the gifting of the Ferry Street property did not entirely heal the feelings but insisted that it was her that actually had the real grudge against Abby Borden. Can I, these girls, like, it, it was... I know I'm, I'm making them a little bitchy, but some of the, it reads a little bitchy. It was, it was nice of them to buy that house just so someone yes. else could live in it. and Who the, couldn't afford to. And it doesn't hurt the girls any, and it's not yeah. their money. Yeah, I know. It's stupid. It's petty. And then the dad to to ba- like buys them off with a house that they don't live in, it, and it's still not enough. It seems like, and uh, Andrew especially seemed to have doted upon Lizzie as much as he doted on anyone. Um, like she said herself, I never really wanted for anything, but I did have to ask a few times, basically. 
Um, but I think that this whole thing was probably uh, both a symbol and a summation of years, maybe, of resentment. And it, it was like, this is the last straw, or this is the type of stuff you always do for Abby. Um, you, you know, you at our expense, when it's not, obviously. Uh, I think this was just their breaking point. It just feels so Menendez to me, like yes. boo-hoo. It's very Menendez Brothers. Emma also called John Morse a very dear uncle of ours, of mine, and also named Hiram Harrington as the only person she knew with a grudge against her father. Harrington agreed that he and Andrew were not on speaking terms, but he did say the two families themselves at least were cordial with each other. Other testimony by Dr. Bowen and neighbor Adelaide Churchill confirmed pieces of Lizzie's testimony, which they were present for, like the general timeline from their perspectives, Lizzie's change of clothing during the day, and that both of them had been told by Lizzie that Abby had received a message and gone out. Churchill also added that later Lizzie said she wished somebody would try to find Mrs. Borden because she thought she had heard her come in. So this is right after Abby ostensibly has found the body. Adelaide Churchill is, of, of Andrew. Adelaide Churchill is one of the first people oh, to be on the scene. Lizzie has found the body. Lizzie. Yeah, Abby's dead. So this is ostensibly right after Lizzie has found the body. Um, Adelaide Churchill goes over. She's one of the first people on the scene. And this is when Lizzie says, oh, no, where's Abby? Someone's got to find her. But she, she says went Mrs. Out. Borden because that's what she calls Of course. Um, so she's trying to establish that she has not seen Abby's body yet. But then later she said, oh, she came back. The whole Abby leaving the house thing is very weird, vague, and tenuous. But, and Bridget does not back it up, but it this seems. Is, this is the second person who has said, Lizzie said Abby had left the house and didn't mention her coming home. Yes. And we know that later in the same day, she did say, before Abby was found, like, oh, you know what? She did come home. And she also said that Abby had stated she was going to get their dinner or whatever when she was out. That doesn't come up again. And she's, she tells different people different things. That's a bad thing to do when yeah. you're a murder suspect. Yeah. John Morse also delivered some very intriguing testimony. Apparently, Andrew had talked to him about making a will in the last year. Apparently, he did not have one already. And Charles Cook, Borden's business manager, confirmed to police that Andrew had also raised this desire to him. But apparently, uh, Cook also later took this back and basically was like, I don't want to get involved. That also doesn't mean that he imminently thought his life was at threat. No, I think the point that that... I think the reason that this is being referenced in the book is that um, if he was thinking of writing the girls out of the will or giving them a reduced sum or something drastic to what they would have assumed from the will, he might have given them the money back for the Ferry Street house to appease them and then was getting ready to, to write this will. And that's why he mentioned it to both his brother-in-law and his business manager. Sure, but he always would have had to have bought that Ferry Street house for, for them anyway. Well, it was right? their grandfather's house. Yeah, but so... They just, he just put the property in their name, basically. Right, but so when we talk about him selling it back to them, did he actually give them any money? Yes, Lizzie oh. said he did give them money. 
So. So she did have money for fishing fishing weights. (laughs) We're back to it. But no will would ever be found on the Borden property, not even in Andrew's safe. So unless some archaeological discovery is going to be made, it seems like he never got the chance to make a will. The inquest resumed back with Lizzie on August 11th, this time with an interesting new wrinkle in the story. Since Lizzie's last questioning, a local drugstore clerk had come to the police to tell them that Lizzie had attempted to buy prussic acid from the store on the day before the murders, stating that she wanted to put an edge on a sealskin cape. Hmm. This clerk, Eli Bentz, explained that prussic acid was a diluted form of hydrochloric acid, which is a transparent, colorless, and volatile poison. Benz had refused the request, telling Lizzie that prussic acid was only sold on doctor's orders. It's probably one of those things back in the day where they thought, oh, a little bit actually helps. It's not poison. Um, And she didn't have any doctor's orders, so he wasn't going to sell it to her. During this visit, another man who was working at the pharmacy uh, whispered to Benz, this is Andrew J. Borden's daughter. Uh, And Benz was like, oh, yeah, yeah, it's definitely her. Benz mentioned he felt Lizzie had a peculiar expression around the eyes. Well, welcome to Lizzie. Yeah. The Lizzie insisted to him that she had purchased the acid on previous occasions with no issue. Very, can I speak to your manager? Oh, I've got thousands of seal capes at home. (laughs) And that it was only for crafting purposes. He still refused, and so she left empty-handed. This story, of course, was immediately seized upon by the investigation because it certainly sounds suspicious. Um, all of the stuff with poison, I am already inclined to dismiss because, I don't know, we, we've already established that people basically gave themselves food poisoning every day, especially in the summer. But it's a weird coincidence. No, it's not. It sounds like they were always... It's a weird coincidence that she wanted poisoned and people got poisoned. Whether it was by food or whatever. Bacteria. Mm -hmm. Knowlton began the questioning with, Your attention has already been called to the circumstance of going into the drugstore of Smith's on the corner of Columbia and Main Streets, has it not, the day before the tragedy? Lizzie claimed that she did not know that particular drugstore. (laughs) Knowlton then asked if she had gone into any drugstore to ask for prussic acid. No, she replied. She was at home all day that Wednesday. Here we go. Uh, though she did admit to having sk- seal skin in the attic, she told Knowlton that she had never used anything on them, including prussic acid. Knowlton, however, would have multiple witnesses placing her at that drugstore that Wednesday. Whether or not she had actually been there, they were going to testify that she had. In a later letter to Attorney General Albert Pillsbury, Knowlton referred to Lizzie's inquest testimony as her confession which, of course, is a big, bold sign of how he saw things and what was soon to come. When wrapping the questioning up, Knowlton asked, if you can furnish any other fact or give any other, even suspicion, that will assist the officers in any way in this matter. At this point, unfortunately for her credibility, um, Lizzie brings up a bit of a one-armed man situation, saying that uh, she had seen a shadowy figure around 9 p.m. lurking outside the house the night before the murders. Classic. Any details? I came home from Miss Russell's one night, and as I came up, I always glanced toward the side door. As I came along by the carriageway, I saw a shadow on the side steps. 
I did not stop walking, but I walked slower. Somebody ran down the steps. I thought it was a man because I saw no skirts. I hurried in the front door as fast as I could, and I locked it. She said that she had also seen a similar suspicious figure around the front of the house the previous winter, and could only recall that the figure was not very tall. After this, Lizzie Borden would never speak under oath about the murders again, and so the inquest marks her first and only official testimony about the murders of Andrew and Abby Borden. Next week, we'll talk more clues, suspicions, witness testimonies, and of course the eventual sensational trial of Lizzie Borden for the murders of her father and stepmother in the most brutal fashion and the aftermath that still leaves us with far more questions than answers to this day. So, Sean, do you want to talk about what possible theories you or we may have brewing so far? Yeah, I would uh, love to. I think, and hear me out, see if you can follow me on this, it's complicated. Uh, I think this woman bludgeoned her uh, (laughs) stepmother to death with a hatchet, And then I think after her dad got home, she bludgeoned him to death Mm. with a hatchet. Mm. That's what I think. This woman as in Lizzie Borden. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Well, I think we have a few possibilities. I I put up a a poll uh, before we were doing this series on Instagram and Twitter just to see what the general vibe was. I, I, I made it a binary. She did it. She didn't do it. And it was like 75% she did it. But some people say wanted like a third option, which was she didn't physically do it, but she was involved. She knew about it. She helped coordinate it, whichever of those. So I think we already have a few options and we're going to have more, but we already have a few options for um, theories. It could be Morse. It could be she did it all. It could be she did it physically and Emma was in on it because of family strife. Yeah, I, that, that is the way that I would lean the most right now. And maybe Emma was purposely out of town and Lizzie was going to take the heat. Um, Lizzie did it somehow with either her uncle or Seabury Bowen, either physically or they physically did it and she was in on it. They did it for her. Um, she might be having an affair with either of them. Uh, Morse did it by himself, which I think is less likely because we seem to have established where he was for at least Andrew's murder. And we, Morse and the doctor are both people who like Bridget would have recognized, right? Yes. And I also believe, well, Bridget definitely knew the doctor and definitely knew Morse. But I think because the doctor showed up when Morse was leaving that other house, I think that probably also places him there or on the way there during Andrew's murder. So he's probably not physically there for at least Andrew's murder. And then there's the uh, the possibility that someone else did it. A red, the random strain, the random Portuguese. <laughs> the one-armed man, we'll call him. Uh, and that's a reference to the fugitive where uh, Harrison Ford does, claims that this mysterious other guy did it. But, it, you know, which is very common to crimes, except this time it actually happened. But the police don't believe him. Tommy Lee Jones does some uh, world class bellowing in that movie. I don't care. Oh, yeah. Um, it, and this person might have had an opportunity considering there was a point where Bridget was washing the windows. 
uh, in the front, I assume, um, and Lizzie was in the barn. So maybe someone got in at some point when someone was not around. This one doesn't work like at all for me because that person then, I guess, hides what upstairs in the same wing that Lizzie then goes upstairs into well the well Abby's lying dead on the floor but she was only there for a couple minutes Sean remember or she might have been there for longer okay she but, contradicts herself but she walked past the corpse twice she at least once that we think that Bridget places her she had to go for. up and then down though or uh, if if she if she went there Okay, so Bridget says she was upstairs when Andrew came home. Lizzie says she wasn't, and then she was, and then she wasn't. So we're going to go with she says she wasn't. If she had gone upstairs for a couple minutes to fix a dress or whatever, it might have been before Abby was killed. We don't know exactly when that was. but Because she, she keeps contradicting herself. Sure, but that only works if she's up in that wing of the house for over an hour. Lizzie? Yeah, because there's an hour between the murders. So if she's up there and then Abby's killed and then she comes back downstairs after Abby's been killed right before her dad dies, that's I'm like saying, an hour and a half she's upstairs. I'm saying there's a possibility if we actually believe Lizzie that she didn't walk past a corpse. Oh, okay. But I thought... The, if she didn't do the killings. I thought the whole thing with Bridget's testimony was that Lizzie was coming down... Yeah. Like right no, before... No, that is the whole thing. ...the dad yes. died. Okay. Right. It's contradictory. And then, of course, there's the option that Bridget did it. Yeah. Just because she's there. I don't know why, but I, I, I just feel, I feel like we believe the Irish in this house. We do. We do. We believe all Irish. Uh, and then there's the other option, really, really complicated suicide. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, yeah, and, and really painful. Like, it's not the way I would go, bludgeoning yourself in the back of the head with an axe 20 times. Mm-hmm. It's tough, but, you know, willpower. Hatchet, sorry. Um, so, yeah, so you, so you think Lizzie did it. Yeah, but it's not because of any, like, like knockout piece of evidence so much as it's that I don't... I think it's more likely that a character we've been introduced to already or someone in the lives of this family... <laughs> okay, Agatha Christie. ...did it than a, a random stranger. Mm-hmm. And... Well, uh, keep in mind, it was very brutally done, um, very crime of passiony feeling, and so people did bring up: Would a stranger be so brutal? Well, think now about we know we know from the man from the train that a stranger would be so brutal. Exactly. But would a stranger be so brutal? Well, a stranger might be because of the man from the train. But the other thing we know about those crimes is that he would, like Bill James's conception of the Velisca murder, is this guy sprinting up the stairs and murdering everyone in the house within two minutes. A frenzy. Yeah, so the same kind, and obviously this wasn't Paul Miller. Yeah. Um, but the same kind of like just kind of crazy killer. I I don't see I don't see that person breaking into the house, killing one person, hiding for an hour, yes, killing a second person, having and, a cool down period in between, and then leaving, mm-hmm. not killing the rest of the home. Mm-hmm. So basically, you're. Has to be targeted, probably someone who knows both of the victims, right. and uh, and Lizzie has told a lie to almost every question she's been asked. So, so you think she physically did it? Do uh, you think she, she acted totally alone? Do you think she had some kind of accomplice or someone who knew about it? 
I think the uncle is being painted uh, unfairly just because he's... Yeah, he's an incest uncle in this story, which is not a fun brush to be painted with Mm -hmm. if you're not guilty of that. Right, and I feel like people are doing that to him just because Lizzie's weird, because I haven't seen... Well, again, he's he's shabby and shambling and all that stuff. Oh, yeah, we described him as looking like Albert Fish. (laughs) Yeah, so I don't know. Um, I think the whole family's a little awkward at the very least. Well, the whole family's definitely awkward i think the doctor is much more suspicious than the uncle because the doctor actually does suspicious shady stuff like destroying that letter mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um he's hurriedly like putting together a scrap like, again i don't know how that fits into a theory i don't know There's what kind tea of a about a possible affair yeah yeah so i think uh that one is a little interesting but i think my favorite theory right now is that lizzie just did this thing and Emma didn't know it was going to happen or had no clue or and, involvement. And the towels downstairs are, are uh, blood blood rags. All right. From a murder. Well, we'll return next week and see if those theories get amended in any way. Lizzie Borden took an axe. Hatchet. Gave her mother 40 wax. I feel like it was like 19. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast, Thoughts from a Page. We talk spoiler-free about their books, so you can listen whether you have read the book or not. And then we delve into things that you most likely won't hear about anywhere else. The importance of the cover design, why they included various aspects of the story, personal details about both the books and the author's lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform and learn more about it on my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Thanks so much for checking it out. It's true crime time. Obviously, if you're connected to true crime news at all, there's been a huge advancement in the Murdaugh murders case, which we've discussed a few times previously here on the show in our news segments. But I'd like to dive into that story um, of the trial and everything in a bit more detail at a later time. Just to update any listeners who may not have heard, Patriarch Alex Murdaugh, who hired a hitman to kill him with a roundabout suicide sort of situation. This whole case is fascinating. We've covered it twice, I think, already. At least twice, yeah. Um, And he was accused of the murders of his wife and son after this, because he survived the suicide, along with many other crimes. Alex Murdaugh was found guilty in the murders of Maggie and Paul Murdaugh after less than three hours of jury deliberation in the trial. Alex Murdaugh was sentenced to two consecutive terms of life in prison. But our main news story this week comes from our patron, Ozzy Jean. What, what was it? Ozzy Sean Downs. Yeah. Who shared this twisted tale with us on our Patreon Discord for reasons that will become obvious very soon. If you'd like to join the Discord, contribute to the show, um, you could also receive some extra content, of course. Just head over to patreon.com slash ain't it scary and become the newest member of the Scary Squad. Yeah, add free listening, access to our uh, chat over chat community over on Discord. Yeah, um, we love chatting together. We share uh, pet photos sometimes. It's fun. Send you a sticker in the mail every once in a while. Yeah, absolutely. You'll, you'll automatically get a bunch of stickers in the mail when you sign up at a certain tier. So get on over to Patreon. Having a good time. But anyway, 
This story, as titled in The Guardian, is headlined, Sydney Axe Murderer Who Googled What Part of Body to Go For Before Killing Partner Jailed for 27 Years. Yeah, this is right up there with Casey Anthony's uh, Bing searches. Yeah, so let's let's dig in. Uh, the titular axe murderer, a 34-year-old mother who cannot be named publicly for legal reasons, I assume... Well, that's Australia. not how things work here. Yeah, Australian coverage, I assume, is very different. Um, she killed her partner with an axe purchased from Bunnings, which appears to be Australia's version of Home Depot. Purchased from Bunnings, which appears to be Australia's <laughs> version of Home Depot. Uh, in what The Guardian calls a jealous quest for revenge. Quote, it is clear the deceased's senseless death has had a severe impact on those who love him, New South Wales Supreme Court Justice Natalie Adams said at the woman's sentencing on Friday. No sentence could possibly ease the grief of those that were close to him. The killer pled guilty to murdering her partner as he was lying down looking at his iPad in September 2020. So the murder's not fresh, the verdict is. As mentioned in the headline, the woman had earlier made Google searches relating to murder, including the rather incriminating, killing someone with axe, what part of body to go for? <laughs> totally wild. What, was the, what answer did it give her? Apparently the head. Um, earlier that month, she had even searched on her phone for such terms as, can you kill someone with hot boiling water? <laughs> and is it really easy to murder somebody with a knife? She thinks she's trying to repel medieval uh, uh, invaders. <laughs> she's defending against a siege with boiling water. Don't forget her other search. What is the fastest part of body to kill someone with the axe? Well, that you didn't get it the first time? The victim had previously told police she had stabbed him before with a meat cleaver. However, the eventual victim also had three convictions involving violence against her in 2010, 2011, and 2019. So it seems clear this was part of a pattern of domestic abuse on one or both sides, and it ended in the most tragic, horrific way possible. Graveyard love, Carrie. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I haven't dove deep into this, but we don't know if it was a situation where she's saying that she just lost it after a pattern of emotional and physical abuse, or if it was something that they did back and forth to each other. Well, he never uh, hit her with an axe, presumably. No, but he did hit, hit her. her with a meat cleaver. He did hit her. Oh, she she did the meat cleaver too, but he did hit her. Yes. The victim was with a different woman when the killer called the day of the murder and messaged him, sending 19 texts total, accusing him of having sex with the other woman and calling multiple times between 5.30 a.m. and 1 p.m. that day. Early that evening, she took a cab to Bunnings, went inside and bought an axe, then cabbed back home. She would later send texts to other contacts, uh, I assume after the murder, which included statements like, you guys may hear something on the news. I might be in prison. I can't deal with it anymore. Okay. Mm -hmm. Wow. To premeditate a murder like that and not premeditate any way to get away with it. She didn't. Uh, after the murder, which resulted from multiple chopping wounds to the man's head, the perpetrator just went to the police station and confessed. So it does seem, it doesn't seem that premeditated. It seems like that day, she it just boiled over. And then she was like, well, I did it. There's no point. So yeah, but she, the Googling and then the going to Bunnings and getting oh, the axe. Oh, you're right. You're right. She had. I mean, she went and bought the axe for this. Yeah. But the day of the crime, so. 
Okay. But she, the Googles were earlier, so it was definitely a thought. She will be eligible for parole in November 2039. So, fellas, she's single. Oh, God. That's it for this episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ain't It Scary. And check out our website at ain'titscary.com. You can support the show by supporting our sponsors and becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash ain'titscary. You can call us and leave a message at our Google Voice number, 203-666-5529. And please subscribe to the show and throw us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and also now on Spotify. We'll be forever grateful. Yes, and special thanks to the top-tier patrons. We love all of you. Uh, you heard Aussie Sean Downs' name before. Mm-hmm. We also have Nate Curtis, Sean O'Donnell, Jared Chamberlain, Maria Ferrante, Robin McCabe, Comfy Mike, Alex Nakudis, Ryan Regan, Christy Atchison, Kate Pope, and Haley. Uh, look at that. Three Seans now. We're taking over the world. <laughs> so many Seans. See you next Thursday. Show created by Sean and Carrie McCabe, music by Kyle Ryan. You can find Kyle at his YouTube channel, Music is a Verb. Ain't It Scary has been brought to you by Killer Podcasts and is a production of Longboy Media. True terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events. On our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there.